I think gardeners probably think of these things as sort of, you know, you're you're 20 feet away and the thing's flying around and it looks over there and says, oh, cabbage, and it zooms over to the cabbage. That's that's what I would think, yes. Yeah. Not well, true? That's not what actually happened. <laughs> okay. Uh, these, these pests aren't that capable, actually. You're listening to the Maritime Gardening Podcast, episode 123, brought to you by Vessi Seeds and Safer's Gardening Products. Well, today, folks, today we've got Robert Pavlis on the podcast. He's the author of several books, owner and head gardener of Aspen Grove Gardens, a six-acre botanical garden where he grows 3,000 varieties of plants. He's a blogger, he's a speaker, he's an educator, and why he's on this podcast, a merchant of truth. And today we are going to talk about pest myths, and Robert is a mythbuster par excellence. Uh, Robert, say hello to the viewers. Well, hello, everyone. Glad to be back again. It's good to be back. That's great. Ex exactly. And how, uh, how are you guys making out in terms of, uh, I guess, A, um, have, you had the have, you, have you had the pleasure of COVID yet? Or have you uh, sidestepped that one? No, not yet. We're <laughs> no. still waiting. <laughs> <laughs> we had oh. it in our, my, my daughter had it, my wife had it a week or so oh. ago. Uh, for some reason, my son and I never got it. Mm. Um, and how's uh, spring coming along there, in Ontario? Yeah, it's, it's been really slow. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it was kind of like last year where early April was really nice and then it got really cold and then we had several snowstorms in April and it's it's <laughs> been a miserable week this week and it's raining again. So it's been really slow. Is it still getting down? Like right around here, it's still getting down around zero at night, freezing, yeah. you know? Yeah. I think from now on, we're not supposed to get zero anymore, but uh, on the weekend, it was down below freezing again. What about like, I often like to think about indicator plants. So like I saw, and I like to use the ubiquitous ones. So uh, yesterday I saw my first yellow dandelion flower. Um, first one, and it's like in a primo spot, like a south facing against a rock, you know, sort of thing. So it could warm up. Uh, all the other dandelions don't have yellow, but that one, I had a couple of yellows that were in a prime spot. Um, you got, if you got that guy happening where you are? I seen my first one today. Uh, the Fersicia started blooming maybe two days ago. Okay. Uh, the magnolias are just starting to open. So. <laughs> I saw... Just while we were having supper this evening, I looked out the window and I was barbecuing up some uh, some steak and I saw a bumblebee flying across right. the driveway. Yeah, bumblebee. So uh, yeah, sounds like yeah, they come alive. out fairly. They come out fairly early. They're yeah. one of the first bees that are out, and because uh, um, it's a little cold, they they're not great flyers yet, so they they tend to kind of move slowly, so they're a little easier to see. I see. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Well, and speaking of insects, <laughs> today we've got Robert on the show to talk about, for those that don't know, he's written two books, Mythbusters, not Mythbusters, uh, Garden Myths 1 and Garden Myths 2. Uh, and all he does is just run through all the things people say about gardening that to him, his spidey sense was tingling, didn't have a, he's like, really? I don't know about that. And then he actually go like research that whatever the thing was, whatever the myth was. And uh, you know, throw a little science at it and see if it actually holds up to actual scrutiny. Um, so, and we've done, I've had him on the show lots of times to talk about stuff like that. And today we're gonna do a show along those lines, but we're gonna talk about pests. 
uh, myths in terms of uh, pest solutions and actual solutions that do stand up to scrutiny that are, are good solutions for pests mm -hmm. and a number of other topics related to pests and solving pest problems. So uh, where do you want to start, uh, Robert? Well, there's so many of them. Um, <laughs> Uh, one of the first blog posts I ever wrote was about using marigolds to control root knot nematodes. Right. So these are little little worms that are in the ground. They're they're almost microscopic, but once they get into a root, like a carrot or a beet or something like that, they disfigure the root, and uh, you really can't eat them anymore. So. This was one of these uh, companion planting ideas that everyone was raving about, you know, put your marigolds there and they stop the, the nematodes from getting to the roots. And so what I like to do with these things is actually find some science behind this. Yes. And I did find a study where they looked at this quite thoroughly. And what they found was, first of all, it depends on which marigold species you're looking at. So gardeners like to call all marigolds the same, but the scientists know that there's, there's different species and they have different properties. So you have to use the right species with the right nematode. Right? Oh. <laughs> and of course, us gardeners, we don't even know what kind of nematodes we have. So first thing you have to get your nematodes analyzed, then you have to get the right species. The second thing that's really important is that the, the marigolds have to grow in the same spot as the root crop. So what this means is you have to plant the marigolds and you grow them for two or three months, then you pull them out and put the root crop in exactly the same row. If they're a foot away, it won't work. They have to be in the same row. And the way this works is that the nematodes really can't tell the difference between the marigold and, and your food crop. And so they go into the marigold, but they can't reproduce in there. So there's something chemically inside the roots that prevent them from reproducing. So essentially the population density goes down because they're all in this marigold. And then you pull the marigold out and get rid of them. And now the soil has a very low population and you, you plant your, your food crop. Well, the problem with that is you need a long growing season, right? You have to have two crops. You first do the marigolds and then you do your root crop. So in most of North America, this isn't really gonna work because our climate's too short. So this is one where the conclusion is that it works if you do it correctly and it works only in warmer climates where you have enough. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this idea of putting marigolds near things is another one. So, uh, you know, you plant them next to your crop and it's, it's a target plant for insects. So the insects go over to your marigolds and leave your, your food crop alone. And most of the studies show that that doesn't really work very well. Uh, there's lots of insects that go on marigolds. Yes. But what happens is they actually pull those insects in from areas outside your garden. Oh. So you get a higher number of pests in your garden. Oh, it's right? a dinner bell. It's a dinner bell. In <laughs> fact, they're, they're really bad for thrips. So you might have a garden with no thrips and you put in your marigolds and suddenly you have a big thrip population. And a lot of them will be on your marigolds, but they also go on other food crops. 
So it, <laughs> it isn't it isn't solving a problem. Like it, no. it does attract thrips, but it, it doesn't really solve the problem. So planting marigolds with your food crops don't really work except for the root rot nematode and right. you do it correctly. So. I, um, for years, uh, I had a garden. The difference between, I can say to anyone, the difference between having a garden in suburbs and a garden on the edge of a forest, it's a fundamentally different kind of ecosystem. And I used to live in a suburb and for years I would put a marigold in every corner of every garden bed. And I didn't have any problems with anything, didn't have to use anything. And I thought, no, oh, it's the marigolds, they're preventing everything. And then when I moved here, I put marigolds in my garden and slugs destroyed them, ate them right down to nothing. <laughs> Just destroyed them. And I, all these, I mean, I'm talking for like, I don't know, five years, I thought marigolds were this like magic plant that just sent a smell out that kept like a, like a forest field around the garden. Mm -hmm. I literally set them up in each corner, like yeah. a forest field. Yeah. And it was all just me believing something that wasn't true. <laughs> you know, I really, I just didn't have, a, I did not have a pest problem in yeah. the other garden. And so they, they weren't solving anything. There wasn't a thing to solve. When I got to a place where I had problems to solve, like where I am, because I have flea beetles. I mean, the biggest problems I have are things early in season that attack seedlings, slug mm -hmm. snails and flea beetles. Yeah. And, and cutworm, but cutworm never seemed to, you know, if you've got, you know, if you plant 12 tomatoes, two of them get it and the rest of them are okay. You know, like they don't seem to take everything yeah. for me anyway. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but, um, uh, uh, flea beetles and slugs will take everything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, anyway, well, flea beetles. I I do get those on beans. So right. when I plant my beans and the seedlings come up and they're quite short, I do get them on on the beans and they eat the leaves off. Right. And what I decided to do is I now cover them with a row cover. So that's right. that white spun cloth material. Yeah. And I plant my seeds. I put that over right away and I leave it there until the seedlings are three, four inches tall. And I take the cover off and I still get flea beetles on there. But now the seedlings are big enough that they're not damaged too much by the flea beetles. Right? How do they, I mean, the flea beetles are in the ground. How does, I mean, if they're coming up out of the ground and going back into the ground, you're saying they don't get there in the first place? Well, I, guess? I, I think they're, I think mine are coming from other areas and not necessarily right underneath where I'm planting the bean. Uh, that's interesting. So it, you're, you are right though, that you have to watch your, your row covers. If, if you put a row cover over top of the soil where the pest is living, then you're only trapping it in there. Yeah, you're, you're protecting it, it from anything that might, because uh, it's odd, I, I don't have a flea beetle, never have a flea beetle problem with my beans. But for all of the brassicas, mm. all of them <laughs> there, and it's basically brassica specific because I grow a lot of things. They don't bother spinach. They don't bother lettuce. Don't bother arugula. They don't really bother squash. They really don't bother anything, but the, um, the brassicas, kale, broccoli, cauliflower, all that stuff. They're vicious. They're mm. relentless. Um, but Anyway. Well, each each past has a, a preferred food, right? Um, and they recognize that either by smell or by color, and they will go on 
the food that's attractive to them. I read an interesting article about how these insects actually find their food crops. Right. And we, I think gardeners probably think of these things as sort of, you know, you're, you're 20 feet away and the thing's flying around and it looks over there and says, ah, oh, cabbage, and it zooms over to the cabbage. That's, that's what I would think, yes. Yeah. Not well, true? <laughs> that's not what actually happens. <laughs> okay. Uh, these, these pests aren't that capable, actually. So uh, they did a really interesting experiment where I think they used peas. And they actually made paper leaves that looked like pea leaves. And they had a mixture of real leaves and paper leaves. And they were painted green and they were the same shape and so on. And then they released the pest to see what would happen. And they assumed that the pest would know which is the real leaf, right? You'd be able to smell it. Well, they, they couldn't. They actually went down and they would just land somewhere. And once they land, they kind of take a little taste of it. And that could be just but smelling it. But if they like it, they stay. If they don't, they, they go back in the air and land somewhere else. Oh. So they're actually not very capable of finding the perfect food. It's a trial and error thing. They just keep landing until they find a place they like. Like an artificial intelligence, you know, like a zero and one sort of thing. They just keep trying. Okay, that's good. That's not good. I'll try that. I'll try this one. I'll try that one. Oh, I finally landed somewhere that tastes good. And so I'll stay. Right. <laughs> so uh, uh, I can't remember which pest they were looking at, but it, it seems as if the insects are not as capable of finding their food as we think. There's just so many of them. They find it anyway. Well, they, they, they just uh, they're hard workers. They will just try. try they try many places and <laughs> sooner or later they'll find something. Right. Yes. Um, I also think this is why uh, when we have a garden that doesn't have the same plant together, so we mix it all up. So rather than, you know, a, a raised bed and you only have cabbages there, we, we mix everything in there. We have one cabbage and one tomato and one something else. You tend to have less pests because the pests actually have trouble finding that cabbage. Right. So, so the, war, the more things we mix up together, the, the less pest problems you, you generally have. Right. Uh, once you start moving towards more of a monoculture type thing where they're all lined up in nice rows, um, and once they find one, then they'll find the others and so on. Yeah, but pests aren't quite as smart as we, we think they are. Right. Oh, I wonder is. if they uh, ever play, uh, you know, that game Battleship? Oh, yeah, yeah. You, you play it with the kids, you always beat the kid. <laughs> because the kid kid doesn't work a grit you know doesn't work a matrix right yeah. um and you like when my kids were young they couldn't beat me at battles they thought i just was cheating mm -hmm. um and i wonder if the pest has a way of navigating by the sun no. uh, again, probably not that smart <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think so i think that, yeah, i think you're making up another myth okay <laughs> all right uh okay that's good oh. Uh, well, let's talk about, nem we're still on nematodes here. Uh, one pest that is very serious here in Ontario, and I think in large part of North America now, is the garlic nematode. Right. So this is, again, is a little worm. All the nematodes really are little worms, and, and you can see them usually with a, a microscope or and sometimes with a magnifying glass, but they're quite small. So there's something called a garlic nematode, which eats garlic. And this is a pest that is found in, in most uh, garlic farms now in Ontario. 
And a couple of years ago, they actually went and tested them a little differently at the certified farm. So when you buy garlic, uh, seed garlic, you, you should buy it from a nematode-free certified farm. Well, they found out that all the certified farms also had nematodes. They just had lower populations, so their tests weren't finding them. And the fellow we spoke to, which was from the Ministry of um, uh, was it food, the, the Ministry of Food in Ontario, uh, he said they don't think any of the farms are nematode free anymore. And so I don't I don't know what that means because that means we can't grow garlic. So if you uh, are growing garlic, make sure you get it from a place that's nematode free. And I see a lot of people saying, oh, can I use garlic from the grocery store and plant that? And yes, you can probably do that, but it's not a good idea because it may not be nematode free. Mm. So one of the best things you can do is find an old gardener like me uh, that's been growing it for 20 years and has, has never brought new garlic into the garden. So I know mine is nematode free. Mm. The one good thing about nematodes is they don't move very far. All right. They they crawl uh, you know inches a year, not not feet. And so if you don't have them in your garden, it's very unlikely you'll get them unless your neighbor has them and you move some soil in. Right. So find someone who doesn't have it, and if they've been growing it for twenty years, it, it's almost certainly free because back then we didn't have nematodes in garlic. Right. right. Um, once you have it, there's really nothing you can do about it. Um, you could, uh, I guess, make a raised bed and, and put uh, soil that you bring in that's free of nematodes, right? Maybe an artificial mix of some sort and then grow in there. Um, but you can't get rid of it in your soil very easily. You have mm. to wait something like eight years and don't plant garlic there and eventually they will die out and, and then you'll, you'll be free. So. Uh, other than that there's not much you can do about it i often wonder like this uh fall I, I plant a lot of garlic every year 250 garlic a year and this year i had one of my garden beds uh i would say 60 percent of the garlic didn't come up um mm -hmm. now the difference between that bed of garlic and all the other ones is that uh for years i've been saving a um a garlic that was from a grocery store garlic mm -hmm. it was it was all it was different color different variety right yeah. and uh you know so i you know i basically save the biggest one every year but every year i'd only get like one big one so anyway last year i got three good size ones so i planted you know a whole bed enough to plant a whole bed and almost all of them died and i don't know if it's those had nematodes in them there were organic garlic from Nova Scotia, you know what I mean? So mm. I figured, but the difference between that bed and all the other ones is that it's completely at grade and the soil there is quite uh, damp in the winter. Mm. Yeah. And so either those garlic were killed, just weren't hardy. I normally grow the, what's it called? The white, um, oh, it's a hard neck. It's a really hardy garlic. I just can't remember the variety of it, but it's a, it's a well-known, certified seed, super white, sort of invincible garlic can take, go down to zone three sort of thing. Yeah. They're all fine. I just wonder, I, so that happened and I'm like, 
good God, did they just get too cold and they can't, like, was it maybe like a, a zone six hardy variety and this year, even though I'm in zone six, it was more zone five-ish mm. or is that whole bed infested with nematodes? They all turn to mush basically. The ones that yeah. they're all mushy and soft. Yeah, I don't think it's the nematodes because the nematodes wouldn't do much over the winter. Right. Uh, so they're going to start growing and, oh. and going into the, the bulb, you know, in the spring and do the damage during the summer. And so yes. when you go and harvest them, then you can usually, when you have a high infestation, you can seed in the bulb as, as sort of a, it, it kind of looks rotten. Uh, it's a really bad case. Uh, the problem is if you have a very low number, you don't even see it. You might look at your garlic and say, oh, it's, it's fine. Oh, Okay. Well, that's good news for me. So I, I don't think it would be a nematode problem if it happened over the winter, but right. I don't think they like to be too wet either. Yeah. I think it's, I think my, my first instinct was too cold, too wet. Um, so I'm going to make a video about that actually, just saying like, Hey, you're using grocery store garlic and you're saving all this money on the seed garlic. But <laughs> now I got like, you know, I'm short 40 garlic. Uh, <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Yeah, you don't need that much garlic anyways. I do. <laughs> you do? <laughs> oh, yeah. No, we were still eating last year's garlic. We eat a crazy amount. And not only that, but we, we preserve all the scapes, too. Um, mm. So we're down to maybe uh, two dozen of last year's garlic and maybe two sort of like container, you know, like small mason jar containers of uh, the garlic uh, scape paste. We eat an insane amount. Of, I mean, I remember there's four of us. And the kids now eat as much as me. I'm six foot four. And I mean, everything just gets used. And we, we use garlic almost every day in quantity, half a head or a head a day. <laughs> so wow. it, it goes fast, you know, and we yeah. use it in other things anyway. So garlic is good for keeping pests off other plants. So we talked a little bit about companion planting and just, just for the listeners, 99% of what you hear about companion planting is, is wrong. <laughs> um, but I have found a couple cases that work and garlic is one of them. So placing garlic with other plants will keep certain pests away. And the reason is that garlic has a very strong flavor and, and smell and that does bother insects too. So some people, some insects don't, just don't like the smell. So putting garlic around your garden and between other plants will work for some insects. It's not clear exactly which ones, but it will keep certain insects away because of the smell. Right. It's one of the few companion planting tricks that, that I would recommend and, and that has any science to it. Right. Unfortunately, most of the combinations you read about, there is no science. Yeah. Right? So we can't say whether they work or not, but I'm pretty convinced that the early books on this that were written, um, the people just made this stuff up. <laughs> I mean, I think they got some of the lists probably from, you know, old timers who, who thought things worked in the garden and then they kind of filled in a lot of spaces to make a whole book, but there's no basis for any of that in there. And right. uh, that's really too bad. And there's even a more recent book out about companion planting and it claims to be science-based. And I did a review of that book and I took three or four cases in that book. 
that the author actually promoted on a talk show and she said like these are really good examples of companion planning the author did, couldn't provide any scientific information to support those ideas so i'm pretty convinced that 99% of it does not work. Oh, how about slugs? You mentioned slugs. Slugs, slugs and snails, yes. I, slugs and snails come up all the time, all over the place. Yes. And I've, I've written a number of blog posts and there must be a dozen different things that people can do in the garden to get rid of these guys. And quite honestly, almost none of them work. Yeah. Um, yep. So the one that sort of works is the beer one where you take a little container and you sink it in the ground so the container lip is or, you know equal to the surface of the soil and you put some beer in there and you will find a few dead slugs in the morning but i have a, an interesting video on one of my blog posts where they kind of film this all night long and you can see the slugs coming getting a drink and leaving and, and most of them just get drunk and leave <laughs> but occasionally one falls in and, and gets killed. So it it sort of works, but not very effective. Right. Yeah. It kills it kills the ones that stumble into it and don't stumble back out. Yeah. That's yeah. I that's, get that. I mean, I have slugs and snails. All my beds are mulched, and that's an incredible environment for slugs and snails. And I have I have them everywhere. I have a lot of them, I have them all over the place. Um, so I get a lot of suggestions for uh, solutions. That the beer thing is one of them, but uh, it would just it'd be unmanageable for me yeah. to and as you say i don't know that it would actually uh affect a population control outcome that yeah. actually works for me um so one of the things that might work for slugs and i think you'll disagree with me on this one and i i don't know for sure uh, and that's mulch so the theory goes like this you mulch well and you encourage um, ground beetles to live in that mulch and the ground beetles do eat slug eggs and they eat baby slugs. Now I don't really see a lot of beetles in my mulch but I also have less slugs than I had when I moved into this garden hmm. and I, I don't know why. Now the other things you can do for slugs is you make homes for other things like snakes and toads and I have a lot of places for them too. So people actually make little homes for toads, right? So you can pile up a few rocks. They like any crevice that's dark and moist and they'll stay there during the day and then they come out at night and, and eat your slugs. Yes. Um, the, the one thing that does work for slugs are the uh, commercial baits. Yes. And there's two types. There's a metaldehyde and an iron phosphate product. There's some debate about which one's better. The metaldehyde works a little better than the iron one. The iron one may be a little less toxic. Um, uh, there's some complaints about the metaldehyde has harmed some birds. So if the birds eat the material, it, they, they can die from it. Mm -hmm. So the idea is to put the material in some sort of a container. Uh, it's also dangerous for, for pests, uh, pets. So right. dogs and cats and, and squirrels and all those things, got you want to keep them off of it. So you put them in some sort of a covered dish where the slugs can go in. Mm -hmm. But the commercial products do work. All the home remedies pretty much don't work or very limited in the way they will work. Yeah, I, I use the... Uh... 
what is it, uh, the, actually the sponsor of this show, Safer Slug and Snail Killer. And I think the active ingredient that is um, uh, ferric so or sodium ferric EDTA. Yeah. Um, so again, it's an iron thing uh, and it works quite well. Now, I mean, to speak to, I mean, I, I have everything mulched in my guard all year, all the time. I have slugs and snails everywhere. Um, now, a permaculturist would say, well, I'm just not giving the, um, by, by using the slug bait, I'm not giving the beneficials enough uh, leeway to, to pr you know, proliferate and, and yeah. move in. And I, to speak to that, because I started, when I started this garden here, I was 100%, you know, into the idea of permaculture. And I mean, I still like the idea in a lot of different ways and I, I employed a lot of the principles of my garden. But in terms of the idea of just let it all figure itself out and it will was the way I was doing it. So I spent two years just watching everything go to hell in a handbasket. Um, then I started using the slug bait. So one might say, well, your beneficials haven't moved in. I've got toads, I've got garter snakes, I've got all kinds of different beneficial things mm -hmm. in the garden. I guess also the use of the slug bait is unbelievably temporary. I use it only, basically I use it for seedlings of brassicas and mm. seedlings of squash and seedlings of beans mm. and those aren't the only thing that grow in my garden <laughs> I, <laughs> I use it for the things that have a problem i don't need it for carrots i don't need it for spinach for whatever reason my slugs are still up all of those things but i use it only for those things only for the, when they're young and only for a temporary amount of time so like the height of garden season when i've got full beds of potatoes for instance the potato bed is there's snails everywhere, there's slugs everywhere, and there's flea beetles everywhere, and I get great potatoes. Hmm. Right? They just, they can handle it. They grow so fast and they perforate so much. Everything just seems to, you know, and I don't, so one would think that in that bed, because I'm letting everything take its course, there'd be this population explosion of, of ground beetles. Hmm. Uh, and there probably is, but there's so much more you know, it's just like, you know, there's sharks in the ocean, but there's a lot of herring, <laughs> you know, they're way more herring than sharks. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I don't know about the mulch. And I've even had people say that seaweed, because it's got salt and it dries and it's sharp. I, I've literally got video of, of slugs crawling all over the seaweed. Um, and, you know, something I had access to here is seaweed, um, but they were getting off topic. So, yeah. I, for me, I have found that the, uh, the slug, the judicious temporary use of the slug bait when the plants are extraordinarily vulnerable is what I do. And then once they're of a certain size, just like you're saying, they, they just handle it. You know, there really is nothing that takes uh, for slugs and snails uh, and flea beetles for that matter. Once they're a certain size, the damage is negligible. It's, it doesn't prevent, mm -hmm. it might affect if you were like a commercial gardener you know, but yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that's one of the important things that gardeners need to do is to kind of develop their own um, limits for what is a past, right? Um, I have these, I give a talk about pests and, and uh, I have these Pavlis rules of pests. Okay. <laughs> and and they, they basically go through and say, you know, sit down and figure out first of all what is the past 
So I yes. see a lot of people online who say, I've got holes in this, How, what should I spray? Right, or I've got some marks on these leaves, what should I spray? Everybody wants to spray because they think it's a pest. Yes. So step one is to figure out whether it really is a pest. And if you were not able to see the pest, then it's very likely not a pest. Uh, it's most of the time a problem that you have is cultural, it's not a pest. Um, then identify it so you know what you're spraying for and don't just spray whatever you want in the garden. And then decide whether it's a serious pest. So the, the last week there was a lot of talk about uh, the, these large caterpillars on tomato plants, right? Uh, the hornwort yes. caterpillars. I mean, they're, they're huge, they're, they're kind of ugly looking. They do eat quite a few tomato leaves when you got one of those on your plant, but they also make a really nice big moth. And they are also uh, the food for a certain type of wasp. So a wasp will come along and lay its eggs on that caterpillar. Mm. And uh, the, the larvae live in the caterpillar and kill it. And if we get rid of all the caterpillars, we won't have any wasps either. Right? right. So we have to leave some of these caterpillars. So we keep the predatory wasps around. That's right. Because the wasps kill a lot of things. Actually, they do a lot of damage on caterpillars as a category, you know, like yeah. uh, wasps. Yeah. Yeah. So what some people do is they'll plant an extra tomato plant or two and they take their their caterpillars and they move them over onto this sacrificial plant that's only being grown for them. And then they leave it. Right. <laughs> and that way it keeps the others clean. Right. Again, it, I don't see that as a serious pest because I, I have it maybe every second year. I have some. They're pretty easy to pull off when you do have them and either put them somewhere else or lay them on the the grass and let the, the birds get them or something. So I don't really consider that a big pest I have to do something about. It right. is a pest I kind of have to keep my eye out for. Yeah. You don't want to leave your tomato plants for two weeks with those guys on it or you'll have nothing left. Yes. Um, many of the pests in the garden uh, are pests. They are doing some damage, but it's limited damage, right? You will still get a good crop. You will still be able to harvest your plant. Okay, well, maybe it's only 80% full size or, you know, the yield is only 80% of what it could be. But for backyard gardeners, that's really not an issue, right? That's right. So pick your battles and only pick those paths that are really detrimental to the crop that you're trying to grow. That's true. I mean, I, I often think that, you know, by having, having the pests around, you're going to have other things around that, that like the pests. If you get rid of all the pests, then all the things that like the pests have no reason to come back to your garden, which means that you are the only solution for the pest now. Um, so if you think about it a sort of an economy of effort point of view, it's better to get 80% output and have very little work than to get 100%, but have to do all of the work yourself. That would be, you know, as opposed to wasps and ants or what, you know, whatever, you know, whatever the predator, wasps, toads, et cetera, beetles, uh, sorting out your problem. So, mm -hmm. and yeah, I, I agree that, you know, if, if the pest is really, like my potatoes are a perfect example, they attack the foliage. They yeah. don't attack it in a way that, that compromises the productivity. 
not tomorrow. I get potatoes the size of my fist. Right. Um, well, you got a few less pounds last year than you could have had if you had zero pests. I but suppose. the effort to get rid of those isn't worth it. No, right? exactly. Yeah. Um, another pest that comes up a lot are aphids, right? Aphids. People on things like beans, for instance. And again, I don't really have a big problem with that. And if I have them, I, I just spray them off the plant and I will have some aphids on there, but they don't do a huge amount, amount of damage. I still get more beans than I can possibly eat. And so I don't really consider that a pest either. And yes. of course, the aphids are the food for lady beetles, right? Yep. And if we get rid of all the aphids, then you won't, won't have any lady beetles in your garden because right. they have nothing to eat. So we have to always leave a little bit of food there. Yeah. I find um, every year I have uh, parsnips that go to seed from the previous year and I save the seeds. And a parsnip's a big, high plant. You know, when it goes to seeds, mm -hmm. like four feet high, huge flowers, like Queen Anne's lace. Yeah. and they are always infested with aphids and i just let it happen and they're covered in different kinds of you know flies and wasps and things like that all the time and ladybugs and for whatever reason i don't get aphids anywhere else in the garden so it's like all the action is focused on the parsnip <laughs> uh flower i don't know if it's just pure luck um or if it's like one of these trap plant type things right um, but it brings, it's usually like in the center of the garden is an incredible amount of activity going on around those aphids. And of course, there's ants there too, um, trying to orchestrate things. Uh, and I've, I've I literally, I've never caught this on film. But I've literally watched ants chase wasps away. Oh. <laughs> I think the wasp, I mean, the, the ants don't match for the wasp, but there's more, there's more ants than wasp. And the ants are all kamikaze. You know, they don't care about their life. Right. <laughs> you know, somehow the wasp knows that you know so <laughs> another pest that i i get sometimes are uh, cucumber beetles cucumber beetles yeah i've never had the pleasure i get a lot of questions about them and uh i can't i can't help the viewer because i don't have any personal experience with oh. them so i'll send you some this summer then <laughs> uh, yes i collect them up and put them in a little box <laughs> so first of all a lot of people don't even recognize them because they're very tiny are they right i before i seen them i thought oh they must be pretty big things i didn't think i had them either but they're they're more like a flea beetle almost oh really they're they're quite tiny uh there's two different kinds there's spotted ones and there's striped ones or at least two different kinds i think i think there's actually more species and again they don't do a tremendous amount of damage unless you have a lot of them and they do go on the flowers so they'll damage the flowers and then they go on the fruit. So when the cucumber is forming, they tend to go and they chew on the outside of the fruit. And you end up with a fruit that is, has this kind of mottled look on it. Is it, it? It's not smooth like a cucumber. It's got kind of browny spots on it. Uh, but you peel them anyways, or at least I do. So it's not a big deal. Oh, it's skin damage. It's skin damage. Yeah, I see. I see. Um, but if you have large numbers of them, they they can actually kill a plant. They, oh, okay. It can be very deadly to the plant. Um, so again, I don't know if, if there's anything that we can really spray. Uh, I mean, in the U.S., they've got all kinds of things, pesticides that they could spray. 
I'm not sure there's anything a, a Canadian gardener can buy, um, but I just really leave them alone. If they are a concern, one of the things you can do is cover up your plants before they arrive, and that will keep right. most of them off the, the plants. Right. Yeah. What about, um, I mean, a lot of people are always suggesting, um, you know, the white dust. The, oh, uh, diatomaceous earth? Diatomaceous earth, yes. Diatomaceous earth. So it's interesting. Uh, I, I actually want to do an article on this, and, and I haven't really found the information I want. So we're not sure how diatomaceous earth works, which seems odd because we've been using it for a long time. Yeah. Um, but the latest science seems to suggest that it actually is a drying agent. Okay. So it is sharp uh, on a microscopic level, but I don't think that's doing a really a lot of damage to the, the beetles themselves. And diatomaceous earth work best with uh, hard-bodied insects. So beetles are a perfect example. It doesn't work nearly so well with caterpillars because their, their bodies are soft. Uh, but beetles are covered with a waxy coating and they need that to keep the moisture inside. So things like beetles don't drink a lot of water. They, they get a lot of their water from food and they have to maintain that water inside or they die. And so the latest thinking is that the diatomaceous earth actually dries them out. Huh. It's like little uh, absorbing sponges that get stuck on their, their body. Right. Um, it's that and maybe a combination of, of uh, wearing off some of their outer waxy coatings. Right. But it does work well for many insects, provided that it stays dry. Yes. And that's the secret. Once it gets wet, it's useless. Right? That's right. There's uh, not and, much use for that a maritime gardener here where we get yeah, mist every night and if, rain every other day. <laughs> yeah, because now it can dry out. So if you put it on your plants and you have mist coming in and it, it gets wet, and then later on the sun comes out and it dries it, then it's effective again. Okay, right. so getting wet doesn't destroy the diatomaceous earth. It's just when it's wet, it, it's not effective against beetles. And I suspect when it's wet, it also doesn't stick to them as well, right? So you want it dry, the beetle comes along, it gets it on its body, and then it slowly dries it out over a period of time. So it like also a desiccant. is slow. It's a desiccant and it's slow acting. Right? right, so you put it on your, your plants, the beetle comes along and nothing happens. I mean, it may take days for it to die. Mm. So it's not an immediate thing like a lot of sprays and so on where you see the, the pests just die. Yes. So it does work. Um, it's actually quite a safe compound. So what you wanna use there is a food grade diatomaceous earth. Mm -hmm. Or you want to buy diatomaceous earth that comes in a container where it says it's a pesticide. Yeah. Yeah, that's a food grade. Now, there is also a pool grade material. And that's manufactured differently. And that doesn't work. Mm -hmm. So if you happen to have a pool or you find a pool source with a real cheap diatomaceous earth, it, it's not going to work. You have to right. get this food grade. But it is a food grade. And in fact, one of the ways they use this is for grain. So when they're storing large amounts of grain, they actually mix in a certain percentage of diatomaceous earth into that grain. Really? And that's what keeps the beetles out of the grain. Oh, uh, I see. 
I'm not sure it keeps them out, but if they get in there, they, they die. I see. And so you can actually eat diatomaceous earth. Right, right. And there is there is some kind of health craze too, where people actually go out of their way to eat this stuff. <laughs> I don't I don't know what that does, but it, it's quite safe from that perspective. Uh, it is a dust, so you don't want to inhale it. Right. So that's one problem with it. But if you eat it, it's okay. You just don't want it in your lungs. Right. Yeah. 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 So so it does work. Again, if it rains a lot or you water a lot. You know, that washes it off the plant. Uh, some people put it on the soil, particularly for slugs. People recommend putting it on the soil. That doesn't really work very well because uh, it, it, soil is wet, right? So it's, it's going to absorb like... the moisture from the soil and it's useless. Yes. I also see a lot of people recommending it uh, in seedling mixes. So they mix it in with the soil in seedling mixes for uh, fungus gnats, right? Right. Well, it doesn't really work very well on the grubs, which is what's in the soil. And once you mix it in the soil, it's wet, so it's useless. So th that doesn't really work. Uh, if you put it on top of your plants, your, your, your little seedlings, and the fungus gnat happens to land on there, um, it will do some damage. But they tend not to do that. They're flying most of the time, and then they land on the soil. So it's yes. not particularly effective for fungus gnats either. Yes. Um, but it is it is one of those products that actually does work, right? If 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 everything's right for it, yeah, yes. <laughs> yes, exactly, yeah. No, yeah. Oh, what about um? Oh, what's that stuff called? Uh, and one of the things I use a lot of. I'm just, I'm drawing a complete blank here. God, I might have to edit this out. Um, well, while you're while you're thinking about it, um. The other thing a lot of people like to use in the garden is soap, right? So they take dish soap and mix up with some water and, and yes. spray everything. And people need to know that dish soap is toxic to plants. Really? And in fact, dish soap isn't even soap. So the stuff we use in the kitchen, the, the joy, the, the, the blue joy um, is actually a detergent. It's, it's not a soap. But even if real soap uh, is toxic to plants. Mm -hmm. And this year I've been growing some indoor plants and I actually got aphids this year for the first time indoors. So I got a, I went and got some safer soap and I thought, well, it, that's pretty safe for plants. Even safer soap, which is a potassium compound instead of being sodium, which is what we use in the house, even that is toxic to some plants. Really? I mean, that's what and, I, I use, safers, the uh, potassium salts of fatty acid and pyrifrance. Yeah. I, use, I use that in my garden for flea beetles and, uh, oh, mostly flea beetles. That's basically the yeah. go-to for flea beetles. And it, it does, it's a contact, it's, it's, you're just spraying death over the hole. <laughs> you pick the time of day when you know they're out because you go yeah. and you see them and you just... Yeah, and, because uh, it, is, it has to be sprayed on the insect. Spraying yes. it on a leaf and then letting it dry and the insect comes along later doesn't harm the insect. You have to spray the insect, right? Yeah. Uh, safer soap does work quite well for a number of uh, insects, but it can be harmful for plants. And I've seen some damage on some of my indoor plants. Mm. So people should stay away from the soaps in the kitchens, and, and which are really detergents, and use safer soap. 
And what I found is that if you buy the concentrated formula, it's actually really inexpensive. It is. That's what I use. I've, I've been it, using the same container for years. Yeah. Use a teaspoon yeah. for like a whole thing. A teaspoon gives you yeah. like a season's worth of stuff, even for a garden my size. Yeah. Yeah. So get the concentrated uh, safer soap. Um, it, it worked out for me. A spray bottle works out to somewhere around 25 cents. Because <laughs> I actually I actually made a video and I calculated it all out to show people how cheap this stuff is. Right, right, right. right. If you buy the diluted stuff, then a spray bottle costs you like oh, six dollars yeah. or something, right? Yeah, you're but paying if you for buy water. Concentrate, you it, it's unbelievably cheap. Now it's interesting that in the US, I'm not sure they can get the concentrate. because um, I made this video and I told everyone about this. And then I went to Amazon and Amazon wasn't selling it. And I went to a few other places. And I'm not sure in the States you can get concentrated safer soap. Well, I think the thing uh, is, is that, and I remember asking them about this when I started uh, picking them up as sponsors. So in the States, they don't sell the one. So I mean, I'm talking about and what they call endol, which is potassium salts of fatty acid, which is a soap. And then the pyrethrins, which is a chrysanthemum extract. That's what we have in Canada. In the United States, they have a, an extract of neem oil. They yeah. don't have the pyrethrin. And it's because they're, um, my understanding is that it just won't sell. Like pyrethrin sounds chemically. Everybody mm. knows neem oil is this thing from a tree. Um, and so... I can't remember if it's because it won't sell or because they can't get the sort of organic certification unless it's neem oil. Yeah. Um, it's it's possible. That, it might be that that doesn't concentrate. It doesn't keep. Keep it well. Yeah. It's possible that uh, the neem oil actually works better, but neem, uh, it was not legal to use neem as an insecticide in Canada up until about a year ago. Wow. And then we, the federal government finally said, yes, you can use neem oil in Canada now. So I think we'll see neem in more products. Okay. And neem oil is a natural insecticide. Yeah, I'm using it in India forever, you know. Yeah. But there's a trick to it because there's two types of neem oil. So okay. <laughs> they take, they take the, the plant and they crush the oil out of it. And that has an insecticide in it. Then they separate out the insecticide from the oil. And so you can get just the oil or you can get the original, what they usually call cold pressed oil with the insecticide in it. I see. And the oil is used in all kinds of things like cosmetics and even food products and all kinds of things. So when you go out and buy neem, you want to make sure it mentions the insecticide is still in there. Mm. Now the oil still works, but now it's working as an oil. It, it coats the insect and suffocates it. So neem oil without the insecticide still works great on things like uh, aphids and so on, or mealybugs, anything it can coat and suffocate. But it's more effective if it, if it has the insecticide in it. I see. Yeah, so you have to be really careful which product you buy. Right, right, yeah. right, right. Yeah, no, I'd be interested to try it in my garden. I mean, I've read about it a lot, and I just, we just, you know, like you said, I, I, when I heard about it, I wanted to use it, and you couldn't find it. And then I found out the company that sponsors my show sells it, but not here. But maybe they will. 
<laughs> maybe they will soon. But I, I'm actually completely uh, fine with, um, with the one I'm using. It's it works. Yeah. My understanding of what's in it, it's not accumulating or compromising the yeah. soil health in my garden. It it breaks down into you know relatively harmless uh, constituents, yeah. um, and it solves. I mean, it, it doesn't make sense. You can use it on slugs and snails, but it doesn't make sense. You know, the best pesticide to me is something the pest is drawn to, the pest eats, and the pest yeah. dies. Uh, you know, especially if it's very spe pest specific, yeah. right? You know, like the slug, the slug bait. I mean, a lot of uh, viewers get uh, bent into shape because they think, oh, there's birds eating that and so on. It's, you know, I don't know to what extent birds eat it but i have very little i use it for a short amount of time it's not what they're looking for i mean the birds in my garden are looking for bugs you know primarily um at a time of year when i have bug problems the birds there's no seeds to to find it's not see as fall is seed season that's yeah. when the seeds are around you know, spring is bug season the birds have babies they need a big meal they need a fatty proteiny meal they're looking for worms they're looking for you know sort of high, high yeah. value go uh, goods. Um, yeah. uh, so they're, they're foraging in my garden, presumably for uh, bugs. <laughs> you, know, yeah. you just watch them. That's what they're after. All of them. You know, I always wonder if there is a bird that, and I see it like, sometimes I'll see tiny little birds. I don't know what, I'm not a bird expert. And they're walking around some of my garden and they're, I can't see what they're eating. And I wonder, are they eating flea beetles? <laughs> like you'd have uh, to think there's a bird i mean because it's the size of a sesame seed it's yeah. it's actually a bit smaller than that a flea beetle yeah. they're, they're, you can see them but they're very tiny yeah. uh, maybe like a tiny extra small sesame seed um and there's you know birds will make a meal of a thing like that just like it would be like you eating a blueberry right yeah. uh, ratio wise i wonder if there's a bird that eats flea beetles that would be a great bird to have around I'm yeah. making a change in my garden. Um, um, you'll be happy to know I'm building another natural pond in the garden. Um, I'm making a bit of a video series on it. I, I've watched a bit of it, yeah. Okay, okay. <laughs> so yeah, we'll have to do an episode. It'd be great to do another pond episode, but uh, maybe you can, uh, you know, Robert's written a whole book on building, I have it right here, building natural ponds. Yeah. Um, and I wonder... Uh, yeah. Uh, if uh, you can give me a A, a B, or a C, <laughs> uh, <laughs> on that. I started putting some different uh, ditch plants around the perimeter, trying to do it as cheaply as possible. Um, so uh, anyway, it's a never done topic. Well, the only reason I brought it up is to whatever extent, because it's literally in the center of the garden, it draws in uh, birds mm -hmm. uh, and other things. I wonder, you know, and and a lot of the other. Uh, insect control as you were talking about that's um, another thing I've got a goldfish pond a fairly elaborate one near the garden but not in the enclosure and frogs lay eggs in it but the, the frog those eggs never become frogs <laughs> something's eating the tadpoles yeah well and the weird thing is I think the goldfish I don't know how um, the eggs form and they get bigger and bigger and around the time where you see like a thing moving in the egg they all disappear almost overnight it's yeah. like the goldfish are drawn to the movement, you know. Mm. Um, I have to think the goldfish are eating them because uh, old goldfish eat everything, right? And I got goldfish, like I got four, four or five inch long goldfish in there now. I mean, I'm talking 
tip to tip sort of thing, right? Yeah. You know, because at least uh, 25% of the goldfish is the rear tail, um, at least with these ones. They're just feeder fish. But anyway, I'm curious to see how this pond in the center of the gram, which isn't that big, uh, whether it will increase the beneficial population in any meaningful way. Yeah. Uh, have we, <laughs> I'm just going to make a mark here so I can tell where we are. Um, have we killed yeah. off all of our, uh, you, you have about seven minutes left. I know we're, we're yeah. in our time. So we, <laughs> I think, uh, do we want, I think we've got, I think we've got a pretty good episode here. We got quite a few. Yeah. 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 Okay. Is there anything you left that you wanted to uh, touch on? I don't think so. Let's, uh, let's talk about your upcoming book. You know, plug plug whatever you want to plug, and then we'll wrap up the show. How about that? Yeah, I, um, in fact, I, I'll have to get you a copy of that book. Okay. Uh, I just made myself a little note here. Okay. So I, I just received my new book uh, called um, Plant Science for Gardeners. Plant Science for Gardeners. Okay. And it sort of follows in the footsteps of Soil Science for Gardeners. Yes. Pretty much the same kind of style. Uh, so it's kind of a botany book, uh, but hopefully a little more interesting than a botany book. And so I, I go through and I explain things about plants, and then I look at how we can apply that to the garden. Like, what does it mean to a gardener and how can we right. use that information? And we go through, you know, leaves and stems and roots and so on. And then there's a section on woody plants and then there's two or three chapters on uh, seeds and seed starting and seed collecting and, and propagation. Okay. So it, uh, it covers a good wide range. Yeah, it's just come out. Uh, it should be available from places like Amazon and uh, my publisher, New Society. Okay. What's the name again? Uh, Plant, Plant Science for Gardeners. Plant Science for Gardeners. Okay, I can't. Well, I will read a copy. And then we'll have you on the show to talk about it. And, we'll and I, and I can't it. wait. I, you know, <laughs> I, I, I just wrote a thing on my uh, Substack. I'm doing a column now where I put it in an article a week on Substack. And I just did a thing about, about photosynthesis, basically. Mm -hmm. um, but And I also brought it to uh, something you and I talked about, I think the last time you are on the show, about how the, the plant puts all this, uh, the root exudates into the soil. Mm -hmm. And it's just a magnificent that it does that, right? So, uh, um, so this this information is really really useful for gardeners. It's um, some people might see it as a bit sciency, but it's to me it's just fascinating stuff. I mean, it's like to me it's like you know if you ever watch Penn and Teller, they do a magic trick and then they show you how they did the magic trick. Mm -hmm. yeah. To me, like what the plant's doing looks like magic, and then what you're doing is is showing us what what what's actually going on behind the magic. Mm -hmm. um, so it's fascinating stuff. Yeah, what I think is really important for gardeners is to understand what's going on in the garden. Yeah, right? I mean, I know a lot of gardeners are kind of casual and they just want to know some rules to take care of their plants. But if you really want to become a good gardener, you have to understand what the plants are doing and why they're doing certain things. I agree. And the advantage of that is once you understand that, then you, you can apply it to other things. So, you know, pretty much all plants grow the same way. So once you know how to grow one and you understand how it's growing, you can grow pretty much anything. Yes. Uh, so I, I think understanding that background information is, is critical to really understand why you're doing things 
and to also weed through all this nonsense we see on the internet, <laughs> all these things that you should do. In fact, yesterday someone posted a question. They, they were looking for seeds um, for a herb and they want to plant the herb beside their garlic to change the flavor of the garlic. Ah, yes. Right, the, the old companion planting. And uh, this person had read it somewhere and they were sure this would work, and, but they couldn't find any seeds for it. So they, they posted a question, how do I get these seeds? I got to plant them beside my garlic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> and the more, the more you know about how plants work, the more obvious those sort of things become that they're just not going to work, right? No, and it just, it just gives you such a great toolkit for problem solving in your garden. And, uh, and just figuring things out and also sifting mm -hmm. the, uh, you know, the, the chaff from the wheat, so to speak, um, yeah. when uh, surfing the internet, there's a lot of, a lot of chaff. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Robert, well, it was great having you on once again. I can't read, wait to read your new book and have you on the show again to talk about it. That's going to be great. Yeah. Um, thanks for coming on and we'll, uh, we'll see you next time. Everybody, uh, thanks for watching the show. And until next time, get out there, get at it. Have fun in your garden. Thanks a lot, Robert. Nice talking to everybody. Have a good summer. You're cool. Bye. Hey, folks, want to help support everything I'm doing here? Check out my sponsors, Vessies Seeds and Safer's Gardening Products. For Vessies, go to their website, Vessies.com, and use my coupon code GAVS22, and you'll get free shipping as long as there's a pack of seeds in your order and there's no oversized items in your order. Check out the description box of this video for details. Uh, for Safer's products, Woodstream products, you can buy all the things I use in my garden, Slugged Snail Killer, BTK, Endall. You can buy that from Vessies, or you can go to their websites uh, for a much wider range of products to solve just about any kind of problem that you can imagine uh, with high-quality natural ingredients like oils from seeds and flowers and stuff like that. Uh, for, if, you, if you're in Canada, go to woodstreambrands.ca, and as long as your order is over $69, you get free shipping. If you're in the United States of America, then go to saferbrand.com. And as long as your order is over $45 US, you'll get free shipping from them. So yeah, if you want to help support the channel and the podcast, and they sell something you need, buy it from them, and that'll help support everything I'm doing here. Thanks a lot.